We're in this series about the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, It's a really cool series. There's a lot of kind of things that we wouldn't normally think about or normally address, uh, but that we are addressing because we're going through it, one of which is peace, which is what we're going to be talking about this morning. Uh, But but when we're talking about fruit of the Spirit, I initially think of this story. It happens in Matthew 21, if you ever want to go back and read it. Uh, Jesus is walking into Jerusalem with his disciples, and he goes to this fig tree, and he goes to grab a fig from it, and there's no figs on this tree. And so he curses the fig tree, and it withers up and dies right in front of all the disciples. And they think to themselves, wow, that's what the heck just happened. That's incredible um, that you just said something about that fig tree being cursed, and all of a sudden it it died. And there's a lot of spiritual significance to that story that we don't have time to get into because it gets kind of odd there. But uh, the idea there of of what Jesus is showing his disciples, and, and you see it symbolically, is that the, the tree which does not bear fruit is cursed. The tree that, that does not bear fruit is cursed, and he's showing it in a very literal example of uh, the tree that is unable to bear its fruit is an unhealthy tree, and it is going to die. But what we understand more in the spiritual significance of that is that the, the fruit of the Spirit are things in our lives that are evidence of the salvation that we have. We are inherently selfish and, you know, all we care about is ourselves. And yet these things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, these are all evidences of God working in and through us. And so that, the, the person who does not have this fruit growing in their life, they're cursed. They are separated from God. But the person who, who does have this fruit in their life is connected with God. And they're, if they're growing in the fruit, they're growing in their relationship with God. The fruit of the Spirit comes from Galatians chapter 5. Paul is writing to the Galatians, uh, and, and he in, introduces this phrase that we use called the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, and so we are going to read it together because I am a, a tyrant with unrestrained power. I can tell you guys to do something and you have to do it, um, which is a, a terrible responsibility for me to bear. Uh, we're going to read through Galatians 16 through 24, so if you want to stand up with me. I know this is weird, y'all sometimes feel like you come here and it's not church, but verse 16 says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Great work. Y'all can sit down. I'm just waiting to do that and someone just say, no, I'm not going to do that. Like a whole congregation. Because I have no actual authority or power over you. Um, the, reason, the reason we do that, though, the reason I wanted y'all to stand up and read it is because I can tell you guys what it says, but I think it's, it's another thing to really read it for yourself and to say it out loud and think like, oh man, there's a list of things that I'm really bad at. And that's, they say that's 
those are good things, and the list of stuff that I do all the time are stuff that I'm not supposed to be doing. And that's kind of the nature of what we're talking about when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Now, the fruit of the Spirit, those nine things that we, we looked at, they're not nine individual things, right? And so, so it's not that you can be growing in one, but it's, you're not growing in the other. It's, it's fruit of the Spirit, not fruits of the Spirit. And that might seem like a trivial distinction, uh, but the reason that, that it's an important distinction is because it's not nine separate areas in which we are growing in. It, it's characteristics of God who is moving in us and through us. And so you can't really be growing in one and not the other eight because they're all characteristics of God. So as we grow closer to God, we should be exemplifying all of those things simultaneously. So we've been going through each of them individually and we're on, uh, we're on peace this week. And peace, as I was kind of studying for it, it's, it's a funny thing. Peace is something we don't talk about very often. We don't think about very often. Um, when you're little, you might have prayed for world peace. And then as you got older you got bitter and jaded, and you're like, peace can never happen. There's too much war, you know, all this kind of stuff. And you just don't really think about it very much anymore. So we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to look at three different points. We're going to look at what is peace, how do we get peace, and then once we have peace, what does it look like? Uh, And if you've heard me teach before, you know I'm not very good at making these points compelling. (laughs) These are pretty bland. Like, what is peace? That's what we're going to look at first. What is peace? Uh, And the reason that, that I, as I've been thinking about it, and as I've been kind of studying for speaking about peace, uh, what, I was kind of wondering that question, like, what is peace? How would we define peace? And I did something that I wouldn't necessarily recommend you do, but I did it, um, and that was I looked to Twitter to see what people were thinking about peace, right? I looked, I looked at uh, hashtag peace to see what the internet had to say. And like most things, when you look to the internet, it was very sad. It was very uh, not encouraging to see. And there are a couple things that I saw uh, uh, with just... Ran, and it's not just Twitter. I looked at kind of across the internet, looked at uh, news articles, looked at kind of stuff. When people are talking about peace, what do they mean? What are they talking about? Uh, and there's kind of two groups of problems that we have when we talk about peace. And the first one is people don't really have one definition of peace. People kind of have all these different thoughts. So some people said, well, peace is when there's no more war, and there's no more violence, and there's no more fighting. And then other people are saying, well, there's kind of always going to be fighting. There's always going to be war and all that kind of stuff. But peace is actually... Uh, instead of no more fighting and war, it's that in the midst of bad circumstances, you can still feel comfort. You can still feel uh, safe. You can still feel good. That's what peace is. And, and you have kind of these multiple contradictory definitions of what peace is. And so everyone's like saying, we want peace, or many people, not everyone wants peace. Many people are saying we want peace, but people don't have one definition for it. It's kind of all over the place. And the other thing that's even more sad and probably something we can all identify with is this idea that many people want peace, but most people are saying peace is not achievable. It's not possible. We can't have peace. It will never happen because there's just too much going on. There's too many people that are looking out for themselves. They don't care about anyone else. And and peace is just not something that is achievable. That was something that was abundantly clear when I was looking at how people view peace. And the problem with that is that if it's a fruit of the Spirit, if it's a characteristic of God, then we can't simply say it's not achievable. Because God wouldn't, you know, command us to do something that's like, no, it's never going to happen. And, and so, what is peace? How does the Bible define peace? That's what, that's what I wanted to look at. And so, when you think about the Bible, what does the Bible say about peace? Uh, I think there's maybe, so there's this weird thing that Jesus says once. He says, I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. And you're like, okay, that seems kind of crazy. That seems a little strange. Uh, but probably the first place your mind goes is, the Beatitudes, when, when Christ is giving his first sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, he says, uh, Blessed are they who are peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. 
Uh, that's probably the first thing we think about peace, and we'll talk about that one later. Uh, but there are really three verses that I thought exemplify or help us to understand what does it mean when God calls us to peace. And it's two different areas, and one of them has two separate things. So the first one is peace with God. The first thing we talk about peace uh, that God commands us to do is have peace with God. If you look in, in Romans 5.1, it should be on the screen, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's a very profound verse. I'm going to explain a little bit more about that. I hate to just use it as a proof text because it's so incredible. Uh, but that's the first thing that we are called to, is to have peace with God. And we'll talk about how that happens in a minute. Uh, the other one is to have peace in this world. And you see two different examples of this uh, in, the, in the biblical text. Peace is used like 400 times in the Bible, so it's, it's all over the place. But you really see two examples of peace in this world. There's peace internally and peace externally. We look at peace externally in Romans 12, 18. Paul writes, If possible, so as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Which is pretty, it's kind of funny if you think about it, that he's commanding you like, hey, Peace isn't really going to always happen, but just try your hardest. Just do what you can. Um, it's peace externally in this world. Peace with one another. It's as hard as you can. Try with all your might. Be at peace with all men. And then Philippians 4, 7 is a sort of internal peace. He says, In the peace of God, which we talk about the Holy Spirit, uh, in the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And this is kind of an internal peace. When people talk about they have a peace about something, it's that uh, even though I don't, may not understand what's going on, it's, this is beyond what I can understand. The peace of God, which is beyond all comprehension, will guide me. It will help me. It will guard my heart and my mind. And that's kind of this, this internal peace. And so we talk about peace in the Bible. Uh, it seems largely as though there are two different examples, peace with God and peace within this world. We'll explain kind of how we gain those or, or, or how those happen. But in order to kind of understand, it's, well, it doesn't really explain what peace is. It just kind of explains how we should have peace uh, or how we should exemplify peace. The going definition, kind of if you were to look it up on your phone right now, is the freedom from or the cessation of, or cessation from violence. That there is no more violence, there is no more hostility. And that's an okay definition, but I don't think it really uh, captures the idea, especially biblically, of what peace means, of what God is commanding us to and what we need to be obedient to. When he talks about peace, I think the best word for it is reconciliation. So reconciliation, what it means, because I know it's a word that we don't use very often, uh, reconciliation means to, to bring things together that were formerly opposed. Two things that were formerly, or two or more things, that were formerly not on the same side, bringing them together, uniting them, making them one thing. And that's the kind of peace that the Bible talks about, is this reconciliation, the bringing together of things that were not previously together. And so we look at, well, how do we be reconciled? How do we be reconciled to God, and how do we be reconciled to this world? So the second point is, is well, how do we get peace, right? We kind of talk about peace as being reconciliation, as being, uh, we have it with God, and we have it with the world. But how do we get it? How do we get this reconciliation? And so I think the best way to, to understand it, of course, is to look to the person of Jesus. Isaiah 9, 6 says that Jesus is the prince of peace. And so if we want to learn about peace, we should learn from the prince, right? So if we, we'll look in Colossians chapter 1. Now Colossians is this, Colossians is written by Paul. What happened in the city of Colossae, or the area of Colossae rather, is 
the gospel is preached to them, and they hear about Jesus, they hear that Jesus has, has died for your sins and has resurrected from the dead, and they put their faith in that, believing that Jesus is their salvation. And what happens is some other people who are bad guys come in and they start saying, well, you know, that's true to an extent, but Jesus never really lived, right? He was never really a guy. He was just kind of this spirit that existed. Or he was a guy, but he wasn't really God. He was just kind of, you know, a a really great teacher. And they, they started spreading all these things about Jesus that aren't true. And so Paul, to address it, writes this letter to Colossians about the supremacy or the preeminence of Christ, about how Christ is not only an important thing, but he is the most important thing. He is the reason for all things. And especially the section that we're going to look at today is called the preeminence of Christ or the superiority of Christ, that Christ is ultimately uh, the most important thing. We look in verse 19 of chapter 1. It's where we will start. He says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all of the fullness to dwell in him. He's talking about Jesus there. He's saying it was the Father's good pleasure for all of the fullness to dwell in Christ. When we're talking about with the fullness, we're talking about literally everything. He just actually came off of a section talking about how, how Jesus was responsible for creation, that he spoke forth and creation listened. That was one of his roles in the beginning was to create all things through his, through the, the, his word, through his mouth, that, that he created all creation. And it's not just that it was created for him, but it was created, or not just created by him, but created for him. It was created to him. That the fullness of all things dwell within the person of Christ. And, and, and what Paul is really starting to see or say here, and we'll look at it in the very next verse, is that it's not just that Christ is import, an important figure. It's not just that he was, uh, there was this problem of sin, and so God got together with the Trinity, you know, all, all the, the pe- persons of God, and said, well, how, what are we going to do about this? And that Jesus was the solution. But that Jesus is actually the reason for all things. That Jesus is, is the one in which reconciliation occurred. He was, his responsibility was reconciliation. So it was the Father's pleasure for all of the fullness to dwell in him. You look in verse 20 when it says, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Meaning that all things that were apart from God to bring all those things to himself, to reconcile, to, to make peace with those things. And, and how does he do it? He says, All through, uh, and through, thing, through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. And this is, we don't hear that and think that's a really strange phrase, but this is a really peculiar thing that Paul is doing here. He's saying it, through him and the way in which he reconciled all things, the, thing, the way in which he made peace was through the cross. And to us, we think, yeah, that makes sense, right? The cross is where he died. The cross was, was the way in which he, he fixed everything. But to the, to the ear that would hear this, that's a really strange thing to do. And that's because what Paul is doing is he's taking something that is uh, one of the most brutal methods of execution. And he's saying it is through that execution, through that, that death sentence, that God has made peace. And that's kind of strange, because when we think of peace, really the ultimate enemy or the ultimate agent that opposes peace is death. The reason we want peace is because we don't want people dying. The reason that we want uh, to be at peace with one another, uh, the reason we want peace in this world is because we have a fear of death, and we have a fear of other people dying. And that's not our desire. And so kind of the number one way in which peace is opposed is through death. And so for, for, God, or for Paul to say that, that Jesus used death as a means to make peace is something that would be... Uh, very strange to the person that would hear this. 
This era that they lived in, uh, it's called, or we refer to it now as the Pax Romana, the Great Roman Peace. What happened was Rome essentially had conquered the entire known world. Uh, They had, through their might and through their warriors and through their power, had taken over pretty much every part of the world that was worth living in at this time as far as, I mean, there were people living further out outside of Roman's reach, or outside of Rome's reach, uh, but we didn't really know about those parts of the world yet uh, as much. And so Rome had established this peace basically across what was the known world. And they'd done so through their power. They had done so through uh, victory and war. And what happened was they basically subjected all of these different nations under their power, and so there wasn't really any fighting anymore because everyone was subject to Rome's power. You see that in in Jerusalem, in the Bible, you see that example of Jerusalem in this time, they kind of had their own government going on a little bit, but ultimately they all had to listen to the authority of Rome. And that's what's going on all over the world at this point, is that Rome has established this peace, this idea of, of there is no more fighting and war and stuff like that because Rome has taken over. And the way in which Rome had maintained that peace was through the cross. You see, the cross was invented by the Greeks, but it was perfected by the Romans. Uh, The Greeks originally just had it as this stake in the ground that they would impale you on and it would uh, kill you pretty quickly. But the Romans, what they did was they kind of engineered it and made tweaks to it uh, so that it would actually take a lot longer to die. Uh, It would take up to several days at times. In fact, um, really one of the strangest recordings we have is Pontius Pilate surprised that Jesus died so quickly on it. Uh, he's, he's shocked at how fast he died because it was designed to take a long time to kill you. And the reason for that, it's, it, it's, I know it's pretty dark, but the reason for that was because Rome wanted to make an example of anyone who would challenge the authority of Rome. They say, if you want to fight against Rome, if you want to rebel against Rome, if you want to challenge Rome's authority, if you want to challenge Rome's peace, that you will die, and you will die in a brutal, painful way. In fact, it's so brutal and it's so uh, just horrific that if you were a Roman citizen, they wouldn't, you weren't allowed to be crucified. It was saved only for enemies of war or for people who uh, were, you know, committed acts of treason who went against Rome. It was reserved only really for the worst of the worst. In fact, if you know uh, the story of Spartacus, uh, he was killed, but all of the people that were taken captive in that rebellion were crucified along a road. For 120 miles, 6,000 people were crucified. And you can imagine 6,000 people taking a, a day or two to suffocate to death. And that's the idea of Rome saying, you do not challenge Rome's authority. Rome has made peace, and if you challenge that peace, that will be your end. Now then, why am I telling you about that? Why are, why are we talking about this? Uh, the reason that it's important is because Rome had established its power through war and then had maintained its power through the cross, saying, if you are an enemy of Rome, you will perish. But God demonstrated peace in this. He said, no, it is not that if you were an enemy, you will perish, but is that on behalf of my enemies, I will perish. That if you rebel or oppose God, it's not that you will go to the cross, but it's that Jesus went to the cross on your behalf. And he challenged the very perspective of how peace is created that forever people saw the cross and were fearful of it, but now Christians look to the cross and find hope in Christ's death and resurrection. That he changed the way we understand it, and ultimately what God did through Christ, through dying on the cross, is he reconciled all things to himself. We look at, continue here. 
Uh, We'll just read verse 20 again. He says, And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Having made peace through that blood of the cross. He says, Through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven, meaning literally everything that exists. And he says in verse 21, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. He says the reason that reconciliation needed to happen, the reason that Jesus needed to make peace between us and God is because we were born into this eternal war against God. That we were alienated, we were hostile in mind, that we rejected the things of God. We despised everything that Christ taught and everything that he stood for. That, that ultimately, we are selfish. All we care about is ourselves. We have so much selfish ambition and, and uh, all this terrible wickedness and depravity that we carry with ourselves. He says, you were hostile, you were alienated from God. And yet God, instead of punishing you for that, instead of punishing you for rebelling against him, sent his son that in his fleshly body, he could be crucified so that we could be reconciled to God. That we who were once enemies of God could be brought into God's presence. He says, it's in order to present you before him as holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And that is something that we're not capable of on our own. We are not holy. We are not blameless, right? You can blame lots of things on me because I have done a lot wrong. And yet Jesus died on my behalf so that I would not be an enemy, but a friend. That he went to the cross so that I would not be an enemy of God, but I could be a friend of God because of his blood that was spilled on my behalf. And so we're reconciled to God through the work of his son. Through the work of Jesus, we can, uh, as Paul wrote in Galatians, we can put to death those evil desires in our heart and instead live by the characteristics of God. We were not holy, we were not blameless, we were not uh, above reproach, but now we can be because of the spirit that's working within us. Because we, uh, through the cross that, that Jesus died on our behalf, now we can put to death our fleshly desires and live for him. So then what does that look like? The third, the, the third point is, is once we have that peace, once we have that reconciliation with God, well, what does that look like in our lives? And we looked at those three verses, right? The first one was the, the, the Romans 5.1 verse. It says, uh, because of the justification, now we have peace with God. And that's, of course, the most important one is that we must be found in the person of Christ in order to be, or to have peace with God. That we were born into this eternal struggle of fighting against the things of God, but through his son, we can be brought back into the presence of God. We looked in Romans 12, 18. This was the one where Paul said that if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And the context of this verse is is, uh, really noteworthy. So Paul is right now, since near the end of his life, he is waiting in a Roman prison uh, to go to a trial in which he knows that he will die. He is going to receive the death penalty. He will have his head cut off. Uh, and at this point, he knows that that's going to happen. He's basically um, appealed to this several times, and it's gone to the point where he can't appeal it anymore. And 
It's fascinating that even though he knows that he is going to die soon because the the Roman government is going to kill him, he says, hey, just to the best of your ability, try to be at peace with all people. That guy had every reason to not be at peace with the Roman government, and yet he's saying, to the best of your ability, be at peace. And that's an important distinction because peace takes two parties. It doesn't, it's not just that, that peace, you know, you can be a peaceful person, but in the way that God had desired to reconcile all things to himself, uh, it's up to us to be willing to admit our fault and to be reconciled to God, that he has sent his son to die for us, but that we must be willing to be reconciled. And similarly, he's saying, you can't have peace with everyone, but you can do everything within your ability to extend peace to everyone. Sometimes they'll accept it, sometimes they'll reject it, but do everything you can. And the third one was the Philippians 4, and, and uh, verse six, is, uh, 6 and 7 are important when he says, uh, Be anxious for nothing, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He's saying this internal struggle of, of we have anxiety, we have depression, we have sadness, we have fear, we have all this stuff going on internally, and those things certainly exist, but he says, uh, bring all those things before God, and the peace of God, which you can't even understand, will help guard you, will help your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And so this peace with the world that we have, both internally and externally, is only possible through having peace with God. But what's interesting about peace, and this is, this is I think, the thing that, uh, at least for me personally, that I probably have the greatest misunderstanding of, is that there are a lot of times where we don't feel at peace. I think the greatest example of it, honestly, is Jesus when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's hours before his trial uh, in which that will result in his crucifixion. Uh, he is, is awaiting, basically, for Judas to betray him, and he's nervous and he's sweating and he has anxiety and, and he, he's praying to God. He's saying, God, if, if any way possible, let this cup pass, but if it will not, your will be done. And you think to yourself, okay, well, if peace is a fruit of the Spirit, if peace is something we should be experiencing, then why is it that Jesus doesn't feel at peace in that moment? And that is because peace is not a feeling. Peace is not an emotion. Peace is an action. We aren't called to feel peace. We are called to be peaceful. Jesus said in the first sermon he ever gave, he said, Blessed are they who are peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. That we're not called to feel peace, we are called to make peace. And that through the world, seeing us making peace, we'll know that we are sons of God. And what does that mean to make peace? Peace. What does that mean to, to not just feel, or not, to not feel peace, but to live peacefully? Is to when you are wronged by someone, to still make peace with them, even though you know you are right. Or if you have wronged somebody, to come to them in forgiveness and say, I want to be reconciled back to you. To live peacefully is to by every means necessary, by any of our ability to reconcile all people back to ourselves because we know that once upon a time we wronged God in the worst way possible, that we sinned against his son. 
And yet he still willing, was willing to go to the cross on our behalf to make enemies friends. And if God can reconcile us to himself, then surely we can reconcile anything going on in our lives because no one has wronged us in that way. And so it's to, to make peace, it's to, to bring things back together, things that were formerly separated, to bring them together to the best of our ability because we are called to make peace. It's a powerful thing to make peace when someone sees, oh man, that person was wronged and yet they're willing to forgive, they're willing to, to bring people back to themselves because of the love that they have. That we're called to be peacemakers. It also means that at times when you don't feel at peace with yourself, Right? Some of us experience anxiety or depression or sadness or fear or whatever these, these experiences or these emotions are. And it's not that when you come to Christ, those things automatically disappear. You will still carry those things with you. But it's in those moments to have the faith to know, even though I feel bad, even though I'm worried, even though I'm sad, no matter what it is, I am loved by God. And even though it doesn't necessarily feel like I'm at peace, I know I have peace with my creator because of what he has done with, for me. It's not just to experience the feeling or the emotion, but to act in obedience of knowing that God has made peace. And then most importantly, it's to be at peace with God. Some of us probably feel distant from God. Feel like we've, we've done so much wrong and we've, uh, maybe you've, you've never been a Christian before. Maybe you were a Christian or are a Christian, but you have not really lived like a Christian recently, and, and you just feel this, uh, man, I have wronged God. I have not lived according to these fruits of the Spirit, but I have lived according to the deeds of my own flesh. Jesus wants to reconcile us to him. He's done the work. He, he's gone to the cross. He has made enemies friends through the blood that he spilled so that we could come to know him. And so for each and every one of us to make peace, to be obedient to this commandment of Christ is to be reconciled to God. Whether for the first time, whether for the hundredth time, to repent before him and say, God, I have distanced myself from you. I have engaged in this warfare against you. I have struggled against your commandments. I've chosen my deeds of the flesh over your fruit of the spirit. Lord, I repent. I'm sorry. And I want to be at peace with you, the creator of the heavens and the earth. You see, the reason that peace, that we can have peace in this world is because through the work of Christ, we know that this world is not our final destination. If someone wrongs you, that sucks, but who cares? Because someday we'll be in the presence of God in heaven. And so it's to make peace in this world. You see, we talked about Rome. Rome had uh, about a 1,000-year period in which there was, there was this peace through the, the fear of the cross that they instilled in the hearts of people. But in 467, Rome would be taken over. A more powerful, badder nation would come along and destroy Rome, and, and everything that Rome stood for would cease to exist, and it would become just this ancient place that doesn't have any power anymore. And yet Jesus, his peace still remains. 
There's no one that has more books written about them. There's no one that has more songs sung about them. There's no one that has more paintings painted of them. There is no one that has a larger following, no nation, no country, nothing in history that has a larger following than the person of Christ. And that's because the peace that Christ has to offer is real. It has lasted through the existence of humanity because he is the fullness of all things. And he has done the work so that we may have peace with him. We're going to do communion this morning. And the last night of Jesus' life, before he would go to the cross, he had his disciples together and and, and he said, Take my body and eat, take my blood and drink, for these have been poured out for you. And the disciples don't know what's going to happen. Their life is going to change drastically in the next day. And then in the next three days when Jesus rises again from the dead and they they kind of begin to realize what was really going on here the whole time, that Jesus came to die for our sins but came to resurrect to show us that death no longer has any authority or power in our lives, but rather Christ has overcome death and brought us into life. They don't know what's going to happen here. But we do, we know that Christ was going to go to the cross to make peace once and for all. That we could be reconciled to him, we could be brought into his presence, formerly enemies engaged in warfare against him. Now we could be friends, we could be brothers and sisters in Christ. And that one day we will be united with him in heaven. So be a peacemaker. Reflect on, on what Christ has done in your life to, to bring peace with you and think in your life of who am I not peaceful with? Who do I not have peace with? And what do I need to do to fix that? What do I need to do to correct that? What do I need to do to reflect this fruit of the Spirit that Christ so abundantly represented through his death and his resurrection? How do we make peace? Because it is those who make peace who will be called the sons of God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for the fact that we who are not deserving of peace have been given it, not by any merit of our own, not by any work that we have to offer, Lord, but simply by your goodness and by your grace. And we pray in this time as we reflect upon what you've done for us, Lord, that um, we can find peace with you, God. And we can find peace with you through repenting of of our wickedness, of, of the things that we've done, of us trying to do it on our own, and instead, Lord, abide in your strength. Abide in what you have done. Believe and confess with our mouths that you have done the work for us on the cross and that you have resurrected from the dead to bring us from death into life. Jesus, thank you so much for your work and thank you so much for what you've done. In your name. Amen.